The State Department adds training options for the Foreign Service, especially for newly hired diplomats. This as the State Department embarks on its biggest hiring surge in more than a decade. The Foreign Service is also adding mid-career training to expand expertise in cybersecurity and global health. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. That fanfare is the State Department unveiling a new wing of its Foreign Service Institute located across the river from its D.C. headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. It's a newer space than its headquarters meant to take on a new mission. The State Department under the Biden administration is broadening the scope of its diplomatic work. The department created the Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy last year and the Bureau of Global Health Security and Diplomacy earlier this year. The department last year also stood up an Office of China Coordination, known informally among diplomats as China House, to centralize its strategic competition efforts. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says these aren't the traditional bread-and-butter issues that career diplomats have had to worry about. But he says the State Department needs experts in these fields because they come up more often in matters of geopolitics. A number of these areas are not what people most immediately think of when they think of the State Department. They haven't necessarily traditionally been part of what we do. But now, and for the foreseeable future, they're critical to our mission of looking out for our fellow citizens, advancing the interests of this country, advancing the values of this country. And it all has to start here and continue here at FSI to make sure that we are as strong as we possibly can be, both in traditional areas of diplomacy and in these new and emerging ones. The Foreign Service Institute also needs more space to accommodate just how many career diplomats are coming through its doors. Blinken says the new space is meant to accommodate the largest hiring surge the department has seen in more than a decade. We've significantly invested in what is the beating heart of American diplomacy, our workforce. Our Foreign Service, Civil Service, locally employed staff, contractors, and their family members are, simply put, our greatest asset. Joan Palaszczuk is the director of the Foreign Service Institute. She told reporters that the Institute is heading up a multi-year effort to transform not just what it teaches, but how it teaches. Palaszczuk says the Foreign Service is training more than 900 new Foreign Service officers each year. She says the department has seen a 20 to 30 percent growth in its Foreign Service and Civil Service workforces since 2020. So it's massive growth. And then the other piece of it is is making sure that we're building the opportunities for people to engage in career-long learning along the way, right? So it's not just a kind of one and done with the hiring surge, but how do we take advantage of the increase in our numbers? Blinken said a well-trained foreign service is essential to address the department's biggest challenges, including Israel's recent war with Hamas following terrorist attacks last month. Blinken says Foreign Service personnel have been working around the clock under tremendous pressure to support the defense of Israel and secure the release of hostages held by Hamas. Foreign Service staff are also addressing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, including diplomatic efforts to get civilians out of harm's way and ensuring aid trucks can enter the region. Over the past few weeks, amidst the terror, the violence, the suffering that's unfolding in the Middle East, we have seen how important a nimble empowered diplomatic workforce is. Our teams from Jerusalem to Cairo, from Anon to uh, Riyadh, in posts around the world, they've been working around the clock under tremendous pressure to shape our policy, to inform our understanding, to lead our diplomatic engagement with key partners, to advance key goals for the United States. 
FSI trains members of the Foreign Service and other federal personnel in dozens of languages and teaches them about the politics and economics of the countries and regions in which they will serve. FSI is now offering these courses in in-person and virtual formats. That's to ensure Foreign Service employees have access to training wherever they're based. The Institute trains about 70,000 Foreign Service personnel every year. The State Department is also rethinking its training for mid-career and leadership ranks. Last month, FSI and the State Department's Bureau of Global Talent Management rolled out its first-ever learning policy that's focused on career-long education beyond a diplomat's initial mandatory training. The department has also launched an inaugural core curriculum. Blinken says that addresses gaps in training for mid-career diplomats. Making sure that all of our teammates can succeed, not just those with a great mentor or a strong personal network, as important as those are. To upskill its workforce, the department is investing in a training float. That's a concept that was first envisioned by former Secretary of State Colin Powell. He envisioned the continuous professional development of U.S. diplomats. In practice, the training float ensures a set number of employees undergo training at any given time without sacrificing frontline readiness at overseas posts. Palashik says the training float allows Foreign Service officers to keep training and learning new skills throughout their careers. I guess everyone always talks about the military training float, right? So that people can actually spend some time stepping away from the daily grind and thinking about big issues, learning new skill sets. And so we're really excited about the opportunities for long-term training that will come with that. Lincoln says the training float is critical to ensure the Foreign Service has the capacity it needs to advance its diplomatic mission. I think this is one of the best initiatives that we've undertaken, and we want to see it through. The department has also overhauled and expanded its leadership training curriculum for entry-level officers all the way up to chiefs of mission. So much of what we do every single day depends at a variety of levels on the quality, the effectiveness, the success of our management teams. And a lot of folks come to this mission, to this pursuit, not necessarily thinking of that. The department is also taking on efforts to improve retention. That includes boosting access to benefits, including eligibility for student loan repayment. Blinken said the State Department has also launched a retention unit to pinpoint why Foreign Service members leave the agency midway through their careers and to make improvements that might encourage them to stay. We've actually rolled it out to better understand and enhance our people's experience so that we win one of the most important competitions that we're engaged in, and that's the competition for talent. Blinken says the State Department is also looking to become a more inclusive workplace. Early in his tenure, he appointed former Ambassador to Malta Gina Abercrombie Winstanley to serve as the department's first chief diversity and inclusion officer. Abercrombie Winstanley left the department in June, but during her tenure, she helped the department break down the demographics of its workforce across nearly every one of its offices. The department has also taken steps to ensure more transparency and fairness in promotion decisions. Blinken says those efforts are part of getting the best and brightest to work for the department. We have the immense benefit of being from the world's most diverse country. The idea that we would leave in any way on the sidelines that diversity simply shortchanges our foreign policy. It denies us different perspectives, different ideas, different ways of solving the problems that we have to solve. So this is vital to the strength of our institution. It's vital to America's interests. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.